just some important information. At this moment, at this moment, we are officially 10 hours, 53 minutes into the new year. Yeah, 10 hours, 53 minutes into the new year. You've had your coffee, I assume. At a minimum, you got out of bed. Some of you, you made it to church. Well, all of you made it to church. And for some of you, that's a resolution. Well done. Well done. Uh, you, anybody begin to think about what they're going to do after this? The bowl games you're going to watch, the, fo the food you're going to eat? Anybody's beginning to think about that? Okay. And now here, this is an important one. Raise your hand if you're doing this already. It's okay. No shame. This is a loving community. How many of you are already considering giving up on your resolutions that you were talking about last night? <laughs> anybody? Ten hours in? Anybody? We have one. <laughs> one brave man who's admitting the truth. Resolutions are a weird thing, aren't they? Have you ever noticed this? There's like three different groups of people, and you know, there's a spectrum, of course, but there's like three different groups of people when it comes to resolution making. There's the people that, for whatever reason, look at resolutions more as wishful thinkings or wishful goals for themselves, and they're like, oh, it'd be great if I did this. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, if I did that, that'd be good. And so they come up with like a list of 15 things they're gonna do, but they have no desire to actually accomplish them. Right? They make no plan, but it's just, it'd be great if I did that. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, I could lose a little. That would be fantastic. But they don't do anything about it. And then, on the other side of the spectrum, you have the person that has completely sworn off this entire process. They think making resolutions is an absolute waste of time, a joke, and not worth their effort. And then you have this weird middle group, okay, who I relate to more than you imagine. That for whatever reason, this time of year is the time they both literally and metaphorically stand in front of the mirror. They bring themselves and their whole life in front of the mirror and they just start critiquing everything about themselves. You don't go to church enough. You don't read your Bible enough. You weigh too much. You do this. You do that. And they just start critiquing and ripping themselves apart. And so then they create these resolutions that are solely based on guilting or beating themselves into submission right? Like you're going to get to the gym and you're going to lose it. You're going to fix your checkbook this year. You're going to get in a relationship and it's going to be good. And you've got all these different things. Resolutions are a weird thing. Here's some interesting statistics about this I found from the Journal of Clinical Psychology. They published this last month. So this is really recent stuff. They found that 45% of Americans typically make a resolution. I mean, that number seems reasonable. But they found that 17% do that infrequently, meaning they don't do it every year, but they might do it every other year or something like that. But this number surprised me. This was rather high for me. 38% of Americans have completely sworn off this process, and they say they never make a resolution. Another interesting thing here is this, and none of this should come as a surprise to you. These are the top things that people choose to make resolutions around. And if you're figuring out, hey, that data doesn't add up, that's because people don't usually make just one resolution. They usually make a couple. And these are the things they fall into. Self-improvement, weight-related, relationship-related, money-related. You know, none of that's that, that fancy. Basically, how do I improve my situation? How do I live better? Before I throw the number up, anybody want to guess? How many people actually complete their resolutions? Let's say a hundred of you made a resolution. What is the percentage of you that would actually follow through? Ten? Less than five? Less than one percent? Man, that is a man with no commitment right there. <laughs> okay. Eight. 
8%. I thought that was a little high too, but very interesting. Then there's this last one that's really, I think, one that we can learn from the most today. People who explicitly make resolutions are 10 times more likely to attain their goals than people who don't make explicit resolutions. Meaning this, let's say you're a person that says, this year I'm gonna go to the gym more often, and that's all you say. You are 10 times less likely to accomplish your goal of going to the gym more than the person who says, I'm gonna go to the gym four times a week, and I'm gonna do it for 45 minutes, and I'm gonna lose 15 pounds, and I'm gonna do this. Do you get what I mean by, if you make a vague resolution, you're 10 times less likely than the person who makes an explicit resolution. That's important, and I want you to hold on to that, because we're gonna come back to it at the very end, but I wanna make sure you do. And here's why. Today, my goal is incredibly simple. Incredibly simple. My goal is to convince you to make one resolution. It's a resolution that it's not just my opinion that has the poten says that it has the potential to change your life. It's not. It's a resolution that if you did it, God himself promises it will radically change your life. It's a resolution that's not founded in guilt. And you're going to notice this. God doesn't command it. God consistently invites us to this. Never commands. And it's a resolution that if you do, will truly radically change the way you view life. It will change your life. The resolution is simple. That you would spend more time with God this year. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm at church. You have to say that. You're the pastor. You got to say that. Well, yes and yes. But it's the only resolution that truly has a promise attached to it. That if you would spend more time with God, those things that you want, those resolutions, those four categories, you know, self-improvement, weight-related, money, all that stuff, in truth, if you submit and you listen to God's word and you allow him to speak into your life, it will change you. It will affect all of those areas. I promise you this. I promise you, if you bring all those struggles, all those things that you're trying to come up with a resolution to fix, and you bring that to God, and you allow him to speak, God promises it will change your life. What I want to do is I want to unpack that for you. Okay? I want to unpack it for you. What does it mean to spend time with God? So we're going to start big picture. Like, what do I mean by that? Because it's a phrase Christian use a lot of times, but we aren't very clear on what that means. Then, after I unpack it, I want to talk about why we should do it. That'll be the bulk of the talk. Why we should spend time with God. And then finally, this may be one of the most practical talks you get in a while. I will give you the most hands-on, practical ways that you can literally walk out this door and spend time with God today, doing something. And we're, in fact, we're going to practice it together, and you're going to see like, oh, wow, this really is easy. I can do this. Okay, so that's what we're doing. My goal is to get you to spend time with God today. I'm going to unpack what I mean by that, why it's important, and then how you can do it. Okay, so let's start with the what. What does it mean to spend time with God? If you've been around Christian circles, this is a phrase we throw out a lot, right? I've been with God. I had my quiet time with the Lord. I read my devotionals with the Lord. And you're thinking, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? I'll be honest. I was a Christian for a long time. I got through Bible college. I still had no idea what a devotional was. 
I was so embarrassed to ask because nobody, everybody just assumed you knew what it was. Everybody assumed you knew how to spend time with God. No, I didn't know. I had to go Google it because I was too embarrassed to actually ask a person. So you don't have to Google, I'll tell you. Okay, and I'll talk about how you can do that. But we, we throw this phrase all the time. And then the other thing that I think confuses this process is when we talk about the nature of God, when we talk about who God is, we talk about the fact that God is omnipresent. God is all places at all times. God is everywhere. And if God is everywhere, that means there is no time in history when you are not in God's presence. And so if you're in God's presence, you're always with him. Well, therefore, I just did it. Fantastic, John. This was super easy. But I think what every single person in this room can recognize is it is possible to be in someone's presence and not truly be with them. Right? You, you've all been here. Let me give you an example of this. There's seasons in my marriage where, for whatever reason, I am just completely addicted to binge-watching TV shows, and when we get into this season, I do not connect with my wife in the least bit. Every day, we wake up, we have our breakfast, we go to work, we come home, I go, hey, honey, how was your day? Good, good. And then we sit on the couch as we eat our dinner, and for the next four or five hours, we just watch TV, and then we go to bed, and we repeat the cycle the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And during that space, I am physically in her presence. She's literally four feet away from me. I could reach out and kick her, but I'm so engaged in the TV, I don't even do that. I don't even bump her. She's right there. I'm in her presence. I'm not with her. We don't connect at all. We don't talk about a thing. A thing. And usually Melissa realizes this. And I say Melissa because I'm so into the TV, I don't even realize this. But Melissa usually realizes this, and she goes, okay, hold on. We turn off the TV, and then we go to the kitchen table. And for us, that's where we connect. That's where we have the most intimate conversations. And we just sit, and we chat. And she just goes, hey, this is what's going on in my life. She shares about herself. This is what I'm struggling with. You know, this is some of the good stuff going on at work. These are some of my hopes, my dreams, my desires. I mean, you've had these conversations. Conversations where a person just is letting you know about themselves. She's revealing herself. And then she asks me questions. You know, what do you got going on? What's going on? And I share the good, the bad, the ugly, the hopes, the dreams, all that stuff. And I just lay it out there. And we connect. Sometimes we connect for hours. Sometimes we connect for five minutes but we're being intentional with spending time with each other. We're being intentional finding a place where I am seeking to know her and I'm seeking to be known by her. I'm seeking to exchange this information. I'm seeking to get something and give something. And when I say I want you to create spaces this year where you are spending time with God, that's what I'm talking about. Space is not where you're simply in God's presence. I mean, that's great, where you're even recognizing I'm in God's presence. That's good. But what's better is spaces where you're seeking to actively know God and be known by God. Spaces where you're seeking to learn from him, share with him, be with him, that kind of stuff. So that's what I'm talking about. When I say create spaces, spaces where you seek and are known. Okay, but why? Why should we do this? Now, now, here's the thing. This part of the talk would be so easy if I could just pick this book up, turn to First Opinions, and tell you there's six of you that have read the Bible before and realize First Opinions isn't a book. Um, 
That's just my favorite one to go to. First opinions, okay? And you, first opinions 316, because everything's 316. And you go there, and it says, thou shall spend time with the Lord. And if you do not, God's going to get you. Therefore, you need to spend time. Like, that would be a really easy talk. Get up here. Why should you spend time with God? God said so. Why should you not kill? God said so. Why should you not steal? God said so. Why should you spend time with God? God said so. That'd be a really easy talk. I'd just sit down and go, so there then. Thus saith the Lord, let it be. And we would go home and be feeling really guilty about ourselves because we're all terrible at this. But here's the thing, and this blew my mind. I, I honestly was thrown by this. I thought it was in there. I thought it was in there. I thought there was some passage that I could point to and say, God said you had to do this. And for some of you, you need to hear this. If you don't hear anything else in the talk, you need to hear this. There is not a single command in Scripture, a time where God threatens or God demands you to spend time with him. There's all sorts of commands in Scripture. There's tons of them. There's tons of them. God tells us all the time how you are to live, what you are to do, what you are not to do. All the time. He doesn't demand you or command you or tell you you have to spend time with him. Some of you are already beginning to think about certain verses. I know. I went to this place too. I spent hours looking into these verses. The truth is, there are certain imperative statements for those of you nerds in the room who are like, if it's the imperative, it's a command tense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a command. It's always an invitation. Every time God says, spend time with me, and he says it a lot, it's always an invitation, never a command. Let me show you. We're going to look at Isaiah today. We're going to look specifically at Isaiah 55. And if you want, you're welcome to open up to Isaiah 55, but I'm going to throw the verses on the screen, and we're going to take it in smaller bites. But Isaiah 55, and if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus showed up. 700 years. All right? And then in Isaiah 53, it's become known as the Gospel of Isaiah. It is this beautiful passage that clearly, clearly describes what Jesus did some 700 years after Isaiah wrote this. It's the passage that talks about this servant that will step in to humanity, God's chosen person, chosen to lead Israel, chosen to love Israel, chosen to take care of Israel, who suffers and dies on our behalf. The suffering servant is what it's called. And this passage, and then in Isaiah 54, we talk about the consequences of the suffering servant coming are that forgiveness is extended to everyone else. Because of what the servant did in coming and dying and bearing our pain and bearing our suffering and bearing our sins on himself, 54, Isaiah 54 says, forgiveness is extended to everyone else. And then in Isaiah 55, God doesn't just describe what's going to happen to the servant, and he doesn't just say the consequences of that servant. He then invites us. He invites his people, and he says, come and experience the forgiveness I've offered you. Come and experience the life that I've given you. Come. And I want you to see, as we read Isaiah 55, how many times God asks you to do something in this section. And I want you to say, are these commands or are they invitations? And I, I think you're going to see kind of where I, I land on this one. This is what he says, Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come. All who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come. 
buy and eat. Come, buy wine, buy milk without money, without cost. It doesn't cost you anything. Come, get over here. Come on. And you think, well, what's this without money thing? This is the context of Isaiah is very clear. You don't have to bring anything to come to God. In fact, you have nothing to bring. But why you come and why it's free and why you can experience the gift and the forgiveness and the grace of God is because of what God did through the suffering servant. Isaiah 53. If you read this, this this context makes a whole lot of sense. You don't have to bring anything. The servant has done everything for you. So come. Look, some of you are thinking, I can't read my Bible. I haven't prayed in a while because I just haven't had a good week. I really messed up. My life's fallen apart. Look, I get that. We've all been there. That is not out of Scripture. That's not out of Scripture. That's in your head. That's a lie of Satan. What God continually says is, yeah, I know you messed up. I know. Give up that stuff and come back to me. You don't have to bring anything. Bring your filth. If you can't ditch it yourself, bring it to me. I'll help you. Come. And then he says this, why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? This one's a little weird too, but I think to help you understand this is a lot of people use this time of year to make resolutions, right? Duh. A lot of people use this time to make resolutions, and the resolutions are typically based around this fact. They look and they recognize, my life isn't as it should be. I'm not happy in life. If only I lost the weight. If only I had more education. If only I could fix my relationships. If only I could get my checkbook in order. If only, if only, if only. And so people spend all this time, all this effort, all this money, and if you're not sure, go to Costco and see how much gym equipment is right there as you walk in. People spend so much money and time and effort trying to improve their life on stuff. And what God is saying in the midst of this is, why are you spending money? Why are you wasting your time over here? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Instead, come, listen. Look at verse 2. Listen to me. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen. Why? So that you may live. You're spending all this time, all this effort, all this energy on this, your resolutions. And God's like, no, no. If only you did this one thing, this one thing, then you would experience the life you were created for. Did you notice the verbs? Look, I made this yesterday. I missed verbs. Whoops. We're trying new technology here. Do you see these verbs? These are command statements. They're in the imperative and the jussive tense, and if you're like a super nerd, you know what that means, but for the rest of us, they are statements that God is kind of saying, like, come on, get over here. That's a command tense. But are they really commands? Jussives work as exhortations. Jussive works more, the better way of understanding, as begging. This is God kind of begging. Not just inviting. Come on, come on. Come on. Come on, come over here. Listen to me. You want to live, I'm offering it to you. Look at those verbs. 
So why should we come? God invites us to. He doesn't threaten us. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he says this. We'll get to that. Lee, can you go back one for me? Thank you. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, declares the Lord. And neither are my ways your ways. Why should you come to God? Not only is God not saying, you better or else. But God is saying, why should you come? Because we don't think alike. You and I do not think like God thinks. And I don't think anybody, this is going to be like, oh yeah, that's true. (laughs) We don't have that God complex. And then verse 9, beautiful image. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, what God is saying is, you're like a child. You see things from this perspective. Your worldview is way down here versus God who's way up here. God, the creator of the universe, who knit everything together, who knit everyone together, who understands everything, going back to the God's nature, who is omniscient, who knows everything. That's God. This is you. You don't know everything. And to prove this to you, have you ever had that situation where in the moment you do not understand why something is happening? You don't understand why you did something or why something was allowed to happen to you. Or worse, you don't understand why that guy at work is so obnoxious. And then you give it a month, give it a year, give it a week, and you find out Either the circumstances seem to make a lot more sense to you or you begin to realize, oh, there's a lot more going on at that guy at work in his life. His marriage is falling apart. His kid's in the hospital or whatever it is. And you're like, if only I knew that. If only I had the bigger perspective. If only I saw him as God saw him. If only I saw my circumstances as God saw them, I wouldn't have stressed so much. Why should you spend time with God you think here. We, this isn't a you, this is us. We don't have the perspective. So we spend time with God and we do this. Okay, more than that, more than that. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is with my word that goes out from my mouth. Okay, I know this is confusing at first. It's a little poetic. If you go back and read it, you're going to realize something. It's very simple, actually, what he's saying. When it rains, grass grows. That's all he's saying. When it rains, things come to life. When it rains, flowers flourish, grass grows, life happens. And so just as the rains fall, Just as the rains fall and bring life, so it is with my word that comes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God promises that when you spend time with him and you allow him to speak into your life, when you allow that perspective shift to happen, when you realize you don't know everything, he does, and you bring that to him and you allow him to speak and change your life, it will accomplish something. And what is the purpose that it was sent? He already said in verse three, to give life. To breathe life into you. When you allow the Lord to speak, when you spend time with God, it will change you. 
It will change your perspective. It will give you wisdom. It will shape the way you think. That will shape your life. And then when that happens, you have this next verse. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. It's this beautiful picture and how true is this? Some of you have experienced this. Those moments when you've spent time with God, those moments when you were just at your wit's end and you didn't know what to do and you're spending time with the Lord and you have that epiphany like Pastor Chan talked about at the beginning of, in the video that we watched where it's like, oh my gosh. It reveals to me. You cannot help but be like, Praise God, and you go out in joy, and you go out in peace, and it's like the world is a whole different place. So what am I trying to do again? I just want to make sure you're following me. My goal is to convince you to spend more time with God this year. And what I mean by that is find, make, create, whatever you got to do. Spaces where you are not just simply in God's presence, but where you are seeking to know God and be known by God where there's an exchange that goes on, okay? And why? Not because God threatens you. Not because God demands it. But because the God of the universe, your creator, your savior, the one who loves you and died for you, the guy who holds all things together, wants you to. He wants you to. And then he promises that when you do, your life will never be the same. It will change you. Okay, but how? You're wondering, how do I do this? This sounds good. What do I do? How do I do this? Where do I go from here? I want to get incredibly practical. So if you're a person that doesn't take notes and you're like, I'd like to learn this, this is a good note time. This is good note time, okay? Ever note this, write it down, whatever you need to do, grab your child, write it on their forehead, whatever works for you, okay? There's a ton of different ways that people spend time with God. I'm not going to go into all of them, but what I want to focus on is the two most common ways that the church has spent time with God over the last 2,000 years. How Christians, for the last 2,000 years, every Christian has done this. But I want to tell you how they did this, and they did it through two things, through prayer and Bible reading. Okay, none of these are like, oh, I didn't know that. Of course you knew this. Christians read the Bible and Christians pray. Those are the most common ways people spend time with God. And I'm going to give you practical ways that you could walk out of this room and do that today. Okay? So, let's start with Bible reading. I already talked about the story. And I already talked about this Read Scripture app. If you're a person that doesn't know um, the Bible, who hasn't really gotten into a rhythm of reading it, has tried reading it in the past, and is still kind of lost, this is truly the best time to start going to this church. As I said, starting next week, we're going to start walking through this book together. We will endeavor to make sure every single person in this room not only can track what's going on, but walks away with a great understanding and then begins to see themselves in that story. That like those two pastors we heard from earlier, and like my story, that it wouldn't just be my story, but that would be our story that our lives would be transformed and changed. And so if you're looking for a way of doing it, check out the story. Buy the book, use the reading plan, or use the Read Scripture app. But also, if you're like, I don't want to go that big right now, okay, pick a book of the Bible. And if you're like, I don't even know where to start, Genesis is a good one. John, if you're looking more for the New Testament. If you're more of a, I like argument, and I like to try and figure out a structure Romans, 
Those are really good books. So I'll say it again. Genesis, if you want to just learn the story of Scripture, start there. John, if you want to learn more about Jesus, that's a really good one, especially if you take it slow. And then the book of Romans, again, slow. Take it in slow chunks, but that will help you learn the argument of salvation. Those are good ones to start with, okay? And whatever you decide, this is what you then do. When you read, you ask two questions, okay? And if you do this, if you ask these two questions, I promise you, in like 99% of all passages of Scripture, God will speak. God will reveal something. And the questions are this. They're nothing, nothing significant. You ask yourself as you read, what does this reveal about God? What does this reveal about his character, his nature, his likes, his dislikes? What does God desire of me? What does God not desire of me? You know, what does this tell me about God? It's a simple question. And the same is just like it. What does this reveal about me? What is God saying about humanity? What can I learn from this? If you ask these two questions, I promise you, you'll get something out of it. Let me prove it to you. Use the Isaiah passage that we just looked at today. Isaiah 55, okay? Nothing fancy, nothing complicated. We're going to make this a group effort, okay? Teachers in the room, I'm looking to you. You know how awkward this can be when nobody responds. What does the Isaiah 55 passage reveal about God? What did we learn about God from the passage we looked at today? I'm sorry, what? He's inviting. Does God threaten us? No. Does God demand us? No. The God of the universe invites you. In fact, I would say he longs for you to be with him. What else do you learn about God? He cares about us, clearly, or he wouldn't want to spend time with us. And in fact, he promises that when you spend time with him, he will change your life. What else do we learn about God? He's above a perspective shift, right? God doesn't see things the way we do. He sees it miles above what we could ever imagine, think, or comprehend. And then last, his word, he promises that when he speaks, things happen. He promises that when you allow him to speak, when you listen to him, it'll change your life. Was that hard? No. We read a chapter and we asked a question and we learned something incredibly significant about God. Okay, what did we learn about ourselves? Yeah, Derek. I didn't hear you. Something about presence, buddy. I'm sorry. But I think what we're getting at, I think what Derek is getting at is... is um, God wants us to be in his presence. I think that's one thing. Like that, teachers? <laughs> um, I think the other thing we learn about God, or about us in this perspective, I love the perspective shift. This, we see things down here, God sees things up here. I don't have to have it all together. And in Frank, I won't. That's a profound truth. That's a very profound truth that can change the way you perceive life. One other thing that I do often as I'm reading is if there's characters in the story, I'll contrast myself to the characters and say, do I do that? Would I have responded that way? Do I think that way? And since there's no other characters in this story, I contrast myself to God because, you know, I have a complex. But I look at the way God desires and longs to spend time with me, and I ask myself, do I do that? Do I feel that way about God? No. And that one's hard for me. So then what I do from this point, after I ask this, is I pray. 
I pray, and I just pray what I realize. God, this is who you are. I realize that you are inviting me to be with you. You're not commanding me. You're not demanding me. But you just want me to come. And God, I, I need a perspective shift. I don't see things the way that you do. I recognize I got blind spots. Help me. One of the things I'm doing is a friend of mine is considering becoming a senior pastor, and so he asked some of us to pray for him and to help discern whether it is. Well, I don't know whether or not he should be a senior pastor. I don't know. I don't know everything. So what I did is this. I took this passage and I said, God, I don't know everything. So what I did is I lifted up my friend. And I said, God, can you help me process whether or not my friend should become a senior pastor? And so I started thinking about him and how God has wired him and how God created him. And I just processed these things aloud. I'm like, yeah, he kind of has that. Okay, well, what about his wife? How is this going to affect his wife? I love his wife. I love their family. How is this going to affect them? The same thing with his kids. And I just processed the situation. But I processed it in front of God and asked him to kind of reveal. And I did this two or three times, and I was able to come to a conclusion on this matter. And I shared it with my friend. I could honestly say, you know what? I prayed about this. And this is where I was led. This is what I was thinking about. This is what I think God revealed to me. And he found it incredibly helpful. You can do that too. Not complicated. Not complicated. Okay, so the last thing here. Ways to pray. So you can pray in response to scripture like I do. Um, that's my, my go-to. It's why at the end of every sermon I pray. I think when God speaks that's his way of saying, I'm making myself known. And so we pray in response to scripture as a way of saying, okay, now I'm going to make myself known, right? I'm seeking to know God and I'm seeking to be known by God. So I'm exchanging information, okay? Another way that people pray is they use this, this acronym. Nothing fancy, nothing special. It's just a way of thinking through how can I pray today. It's called ACTS, ACTS. And it stands for this. It stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And supplication is just a fancy way of saying asking for stuff. Adoration, what you do at the beginning of your prayer is you simply declare who you're talking to. It shifts your perspective. Jesus does this in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. What else? Holy is your name. Jesus just declares God. He adores God from the very beginning. He just makes it very clear. This is who you are. You realize you're not just talking to Jimmy down the street, but you're talking to the God, the creator, the good one, the father who saved you. You're declaring who it is. It shifts your perspective. And then you confess and you go, okay, so if that's who God is, who am I? And you start recognizing, yeah, I'm not that. And the purpose of confession, the purpose of confession is not bringing things to God that he doesn't know about. Like he's not sitting there going, oh, I had no idea you did that. Shame on you. God's like, I know. I know, and you missed this other thing, but I'm going to let that slide. But the purpose of confession is this. Typically, when we confess, it allows us to acknowledge the elephant in the room. It allows us to come to God and go, look, I, I know I'm struggling with this, and you know I'm struggling with this, but God, I lay it before you. I just, I, I throw it at your feet. I'm done. I'm done. That's confession. God, I, I did this. I wish I would have done this. And you just lay it at his feet. And then you turn to a time of thanksgiving. God, thank you for this. Thank you for the way you've saved me. Thank you for the forgiveness you've shown me. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing. And then supplication. This comes again at the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. You ask for things. You ask for your needs. You know what, God? I, I want you to pray for, I want to take care of my family. I got a problem at work. I really like this. I'd like that. It's okay to ask those things. It's okay. 
to ask God for things and ask that he expectant that he'll do something, but also pray for other people. God, I want to pray for my kids. I want to pray for my coworker. I want to pray. I watch the news, and how can I not pray? Pray for other people. What you're going to find when you pray, your heart is going to be so changed for that person, towards that person. You'll see them differently. That guy that's driving you nuts at work, start praying for him. God, help me to see them as you see them. Give me the perspective that you have. It'll change your heart towards that person. So there you go. That's the talk. What do I want you to do today? Very simple. Spend more time with God. Create space this year to spend more time with God. What does that mean? Spaces where you are seeking to know God and be known by God. Why? Not because God threatens you, but because God invites you into that space. He invites you to share his wisdom, which is up here compared to yours down here. And he promises that when he speaks, it will change your life. How? You can do this any number of ways, but I think reading the Bible and prayer are easily the best. And you can do it when you read the Bible by asking two questions. Who remembers? Ask God, or how does, what does this reveal about God? What does this reveal about me? And then you just pray. In response to scripture, you can use the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication method, whatever works for you. The very last thing is this, just to close. And some of you are thinking, come on already. But the very last thing is this. At the beginning, I told you there was a statistic that said if you make an explicit resolution, you are 10 times more likely to accomplish it than those who make vague ones. Meaning if you just say, I'm going to spend more time with God this year, probably not going to do it. However, if you make a resolution that says, you know what, I know my posture, I know my, I know my life, I know my schedule, I know my ways, I know what I can handle, I know what I can't handle, and you go, you know what, this year I'm going to spend five minutes a day with the Lord because I've never spent time with him. I'm not going to jump into the deep end. I'm going to do five minutes. Good for you. If you're a person that already has that rhythm, why don't you try upping it? Just five minutes. If you're a person like, I can't do every day. My schedule's not there. Look, you're not alone. My wife in her life stage right now, she wakes up so early for work and then when she gets off work, she goes to a church function and then she goes to bed most nights. I know I said we'd do the TV thing, but other than that, there's seasons where she's so busy that she can't do it until the weekend. And that's what works for her right now. What works for you? Make an explicit resolution and tell somebody, tell your friend, tell your spouse, whatever it is. Not in a way of saying, hey, can you hold me to this and threaten me to do it, but just as a way of saying, hey, can you hold me to this so I can make sure I follow through on it. No guilt, no resolution. That's the talk. Let me pray for you. Father God, truly, we are in awe of your goodness to us. Lord, we recognize at Christmas time, at this epiphany season, that you stepped in to be among us, and that is mind-blowing enough. But the fact that you continue to invite us into your presence, you invite us to know you more intimately, and then you promise to radically change our lives. God, it's hard for us to comprehend that. Lord, I pray that you would shape each of our hearts this year to be people who long to be in your presence. That you would shape us to be people who long to be with you and are people that are transformed by your word. Lord, in light of that, we just turn right now as we offer these offerings, as we bring of our gifts, Lord, as our, our gratitude. Lord, may and we, we sing and we respond with communion. Lord, may all of this just put a smile on your face. 
In Jesus' name, amen.